Hey, podcast listeners, before we dive into this weekend's message, I want to let you know about a new podcast that Grace Church is launching called Mixed Messages with Jeff Bogue. It's going to be a great way to kind of navigate all the different communication and information that floods our way and kind of zero in on what the biblical and Christ-honoring message is. So make sure you check out that new one again, Mixed Messages with Jeff Bogue, and find that as a great resource for you as you navigate week to week. And we're in a series right now called Stops Along the Way. And what we're doing in this series is we're looking at kind of the, the, the 12 main disciples of Jesus. And we're watching how they picked up his heart and his mind. And really what they would do is kind of hang out with Jesus and he would stop and show them or stop and do a miracle or stop and deal with, with something. And as they went along the way with him, they, they, it kind of dawned on them. They caught who he was and what he was about, so much so that all of them uh, gave their life for him, except for Judas. And, and God allowed them to know him and understand him in that same way. And that's what he would say for you and I. It's not a book. It's not a class. It's knowing me, walking with me, understanding me. And it's how we come to a full understanding of the heart and the mind of God uh, we've taken several stops along the way. Uh, those stops are on the website, podcast, on the app. The stop this weekend uh, is we're going we're gonna to look into the book of Matthew. So if you've got your Bibles, Matthew chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible out, get one out. Uh, uh, take notes, go along with us. This is on the app also. But Matthew chapter 16. And we'll pick up kind of their, their journey and the pathway in verse 13 of chapter 16 of Matthew, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not to reveal to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Drop down to verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. But whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world but forfeit their soul? Or what can someone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with angels and then he will reward everyone according to what they have done. And on this stop along the way, 
Jesus is pressing into Peter and the disciples and through the scripture, through you and I, and he's really kind of pressing and saying, how do you see me? How do you view me? And who's going to define this relationship? Now, let's, let's kind of stop here for a minute before we dig into it, because I want to talk about something that would have been running through the disciples' minds that was really affecting their answer and their conversation with Jesus. And as we walk back through kind of what Jesus said to them and why he said it, you're going to see this surface quite a bit. So it's kind of a big piece to lay down out the gate. He asked them the question, uh, who do you say that I am? They said, well, some say a prophet, this and that. But he's like, what about you? And Peter says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. So let's talk about this idea of the Messiah for a second. Because that word and that concept of a Messiah would have been something that the disciples thought about a lot. And they would have had a lot of opinions and ideas and expectations about what the Messiah was going to do. So the Messiah means savior or deliverer. And they would have grown up hearing that word and understanding that that concept. But they would have heard about it in the context of kind of their their earthly circumstances, right? So in the ancient Jewish world, especially maybe to young Jewish men, right? Guys in their late teens, early 20s, the the firebrand of every culture. When they heard or thought about the word Messiah, they would have thought that through a political or earthly context. When they thought about a Messiah, they would have thought about kind of their, their normal frustrations, right? So they're in a culture in which their nation and their uh, kind of nationhood is oppressed by the Romans. So they have the Roman government, is an invading government, they're ruling Israel. In between like the people and the Romans is kind of a politically elite class of Jewish leaders. Pharisees, teacher of law, Sadducees, all these guys. They were kind of a go-between in some ways. And the disciples would have looked at those Jewish leaders, the tax collectors, all those guys. They would have thought of them as corrupt, right? So they would have thought of the Romans as oppressors, the go-betweens as corrupt, and then them as like the oppressed people who suffered injustice, suffered at the hands of corruption, etc. And by the way, they weren't far off. They were analyzing that pretty correctly. So when they thought about the idea of a Messiah, they would have been thinking about someone who was going to alleviate all of that. Uh, He was going to come in. He was going to reestablish Israel's past glory and power. He was going to rule on the throne of David. David was like a big king historically in Israel. He was going to reestablish the splendor and the wealth of Solomon. Same idea. And the Messiah, he was going to boot out the Romans. He was going to drain the swamp of the Pharisees, Sadducees, tax collectors. And the people were going to be rescued or delivered and ruled over justly and reigned over in like an ethical kind of a way. And all of the disciples would have grown up in that culture and would have had that context of who the Messiah was and what he was going to do. 
So that makes Peter's answer to Jesus fascinating, right? Who do you say that I am? Peter says, I'll tell you who I say that you are. You are the Messiah, that loaded word, right? You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, good job. You're the Messiah, nailed it, the son of the living God. In other words, Peter was looking at Jesus and saying, Jesus, I, I actually believe you're God. Like I saw the fish, I saw the miracle, I saw the girl raised from the dead, like I'm in. I believe that you're God. Jesus commends Peter for that and says, Peter, good job. That's not something you just came up with on your own. God helped you to know that, right? And so he kind of gives him like the gold star for that. And then as Jesus moves the conversation forward, you start to look and see, wait a minute. Jesus knows that Peter still has this packed definition of the Messiah. So Peter, I'm the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus, in essence, is, is saying here in a minute, he's going to say, what do you mean by Messiah? Because I have a definition for it. And do we line up or are you bringing your definition of me forward into our relationship with each other, right? Jesus sensed that Peter had created kind of a personal narrative about what it meant for Jesus to be God. And with that personal narrative, he created kind of personal expectations about what God was gonna do in Peter's life. And he kind of pauses here for a second and, and he's, in essence, he's gonna to say to Peter here in a minute, let's make sure that you're embracing who I really am, not who you want me to be, right? Now, before we get like too judgy on the disciples, because Jesus is gonna do this with all of them, you'll see here in a second, he's gonna do this all with them. This is what I would kind of put out for, for us to think about together. I don't believe that Peter and the other disciples, I don't believe there was something like wrong with them or hard-hearted or closed-minded about them. I believe that they are figuring out who Jesus is. They're making these stops along the way. And that when Peter says, you're the son of the living God, Jesus is like, nailed it, Peter. I'm not one of these other prophets. I'm not a spiritualist. I'm not that guy. I am the son of the living God. I am God himself. But Peter's definition of what that meant was still incomplete. He's still a person. He still has a background. He's still a human being. And the great temptation of every human being is to bring their desires for God into their definition of God, right? It's nothing new. It's nothing unique. It's just a temptation that we wrestle with. I'm reading a book uh, by Thomas Jefferson right now. And uh, Thomas Jefferson is a, a really fascinating guy. He's something, very unique guy. Uh, first Secretary of State, 
their president of the United States, wrote the Declaration of Independence, wrote the Declaration of Independence for France, uh, was an inventor, uh, on and on and on and on. Really, really fascinating guy. And one of the things that I've learned about Thomas Jefferson that's fascinating about him is that he wrote his own Bible. He wrote his own Bible. What he did was he actually ordered two different copies of, of the Bible, the, the identical copies. And then he went through those copies and he cut out the parts of Jesus's teaching that he liked. In fact, this is, this is what they look like. This is actually one of those Bibles. And he literally went through, we would say with an exacto knife is what we would say today. And he cut out the parts of Jesus that he liked he left the parts of Jesus that he didn't like in, and then he took those slivers of the Bible, those kernels of what he believed to be truth, and he put them into his, his own book. He, he put a book together called The Philosophies of Jesus of Nazareth. And in, those, in his Philosophies of the Jesus of Nazareth, what, what, what Thomas Jefferson did was he used Jesus's words to create his moral code. So he used Jesus's words to create his personal moral code. In other words, Thomas Jefferson looked at Jesus and said, I want Jesus to be this. I'm going to use his own words and I'm going to shape him into who I want him to be. And then the Jesus that I created is the one that I'm going to consider to be the right Jesus or the morally correct Jesus. It's the same temptation that Peter was struggling with. See, because it's not, it's not a Peter temptation or a Thomas Jefferson temptation. It's a human temptation. I, I like these aspects of who you are. I mean, I've seen it. I've been around it. It's incredible. Peter would have had all that in his background but I have something that I want. I want my Messiah. And, and I want you to, you're going to knock out the Romans. You're going to do this. And you're really God. You have the power to do that. Jesus looks at Peter and says, you're right, kind of. Like, you are right. I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But let me press into what you think that that means and make sure we're on the same page. After that declaration, the Bible says this, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised again. So Jesus senses that there's this preloaded definition of what the Messiah is, and that all of those disciples, kind of by no fault of their own, they're not being stubborn, they're not being hard-hearted. They were just raised to believe this. They have their own personal definitions and they're reading him into them, see. So he kind of pauses here for a second. He says, Let, let's clarify this up a little bit. From that time on, let me tell you what's gonna happen. I, the Messiah, we're going to Jerusalem, but there I'm going to suffer and I'm going to be killed. That's what's going to happen when we get to the capital city where the throne of David would have set and for where Solomon would rule from. I'm going to suffer and be killed. 
Now watch this. This is fascinating. Peter doesn't like this. Peter, who just, said, who just got the gold star, he doesn't like this. And he took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. That's gutsy right there. Like, I believe you're God. Now let me tell you what's wrong with you, God. See, I believe, who am I, Peter? Oh, 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 I know. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter, that's true. But you know what, God? God, you have it wrong. God, you have it incomplete. God, you, you got, you, you're laying this out incorrectly. He, he didn't question Jesus. He rebuked him. Peter took him aside and rebuked him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, no, 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 no. That's not what's going to happen. See, you're the Messiah, but I have a definition of what that is. So what we're doing, Jesus, we're going to Jerusalem and you're going to dethrone the Romans and you're going to, you're going to drain the swamp and then we're going to rule together in Jerusalem and make things right. That's the play. You are not going to suffer and you're not going to die. See, because that's not how I see God playing out as I have prescribed it to be. And Jesus's response to Peter is really strong. He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. He just got a gold star and now he's getting called the devil. So get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus looks at Peter and says, no, 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 no. That is not how this works. Get behind me, Satan. You have human concerns. You had a definition of Messiah. What you wanted to happen, the parts of who I am that you like and appreciate. You've taken those out and put them in your own personal book and then looked at me and said, hey, God, you have to do my book. This is, in fact, you rebuked me. God, you're wrong. This is the book. This is the way that this is going to play. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, no, 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 no. That's not what we're doing. You're thinking through your own human concerns, what you want to happen. I'm thinking about the broader picture of what I've come to accomplish. And then Jesus does something interesting because he knows that all the guys are kind of on the same page. So then he said to his disciples, let me be clear. He rebukes Peter, but he instructs the other disciples, right? He looks at Peter, get behind me, Satan. And he looks at everybody else. He says, okay, guys, listen up. I want to be clear how this works, all right? Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. He looks at the disciples and he says, guys, listen, I know that you all have in your mind who the Messiah is and what he's like. You, you have your own personal book that you've pasted together. 
But let me clarify. It's not your book. It, it's my book. It's, it's what I say. See? So if you want to be my disciple, it's not God empowering what you cut and pasted. If you want to be my disciple, you deny yourself. You take up your cross and you come and you follow me. Because I am the Messiah, the, the actual Messiah, based on my definition. And I am the son of the living God. And I find it fascinating that Jesus caught this, right? He, he rebukes Peter. He puts him in his place. But to everybody else, he, he kind of looks at them and says, guys, let, let me, let's take a second here. Let's take a second. Because all of you have in mind that I am who you want me to be. But that's not how this works. I am who I am. And who I am is who my disciples want to become. That's how this works. Take up your cross and follow me. Now, I think one of the reasons why Jesus was kind of gentle with them here is because he understood their temptation. He, he, remember, they believe he's God. No, nobody is like, you're not God, Buddha's God. That's not what's going on. They believe that he's God. They, they worship him. They trust him. They love him. But Jesus looks at them in kind of a gentle, instructive way and says, guys, I know that, but we got to be clear because a natural human temptation is to create, cut and paste your own version of me and then ask me to endorse that. In fact, use my words to endorse that so that your truth is supposed to be my truth. And your opinion is my opinion and your goal and path is my goal and path. And you want me to be who you want me to be. In fact, so much so that, that you'll rebuke me like Peter did. My God would never. My God wants me to be the God that I know about. See? And Jesus will look and say, I'm not really completely honked off about that. I just... I want to be really, really clear because if that's who you've made me to be, that's not one of my disciples. That's not how they function or how they think. Now, when you think about this and you think about that temptation, that temptation is true for all of us. Peter, Thomas Jefferson, Jeff Boak. It's true of all of us. And, but when it plays out, it plays out in a, in a incongruent lifestyle, a lifestyle that doesn't really make logical sense because we apply parts of who Jesus is to who we want him to be. And then the parts that we don't want him to be, we just leave alone and put back on the shelf, right? That, that process yielding to that temptation is how you take like a Thomas Jefferson who would write like the Declaration of Independence and in there would, would put in God truths, right? So here's a God truth for you. 
All men are created equal. That's a God truth. That's a biblical truth that's in the Declaration of Independence that's written by Thomas Jefferson. So how can a guy who believes that, and I, everything I read about Thomas Jefferson, I think he believed that. How can he believe that all men are created equal while owning over a hundred slaves and by fathering five children with a woman that he owned? How, how does that mix? See, Well, it doesn't. But how did Thomas Jefferson make it mix? Because he cut and pasted. So all men are created equal means all white men are created equal. All men that are like me who are oppressed by a government that I don't like, they're created equal, but the men that I oppress, they're not equal, see? It, it doesn't make sense, it can't work together unless you cut and paste. And we would wrestle with this ourselves, right? It's, it's the same kind of thinking that would, would cause us to look and say, okay, I believe, I believe that God is God over nature. And because God is the creator of nature and the sustainer of nature, nature should be valued, right? So natural law, we should let the environment be what the environment is. We should take the dams down and let the fish flow. We should value animals. Don't abuse a dog. Don't abuse a, a horse kind of thing. And actually, those are some biblical truths. God is the God of nature. And human beings are the stewards of nature. And we should be responsible for nature. We should care about it. That's, that's a biblical truth. But the same thought process that would lead us to that, we would say God's the God of nature, but my natural biology is not God's business. I will choose my gender. I will choose my orientation. Those are my personal decisions. But that's not, that's not logical. If God's the God of nature and we're a part of nature, isn't he God of us too, then? How do you rectify that? Well, you have to cut and paste. It's the only way to do it. See? It's a logic that would look and say, God values every human being. Every human being is 100% valuable to God. Every human life is valuable to God. In fact, so much so that when COVID-19 hits the planet, we should shut down our economy, shut down our societies. Everybody should wear a mask. It's the only loving thing to do. And I would argue that when a statement like that is made, there's a lot of biblical truth behind it. Like God does value, if you were the only person on planet earth, Jesus would have died for you. There's a lot of biblical truth about that. So we can look and say, human life is that valuable, but we can say that and then in the next breath say, unless that human life hasn't left the womb yet. So we can abort millions and millions of children while saying every human life is absolutely valuable. How do you, how do you make that work? Well, you can't. 
unless you cut and paste. If I said to you, God is a God of power, and he has power over your life and power over your circumstances and power over your health and power over your finances, and God can provide for you. Many people would say, I believe that part. Oh man, I believe that part. God is a power, God can heal, God can change, God can restore. He can restore an addict to a healthy person. He can restore a broke person to a financially solid person. He can restore a sick person to a healthy person. That is phenomenal. And by the way, all of that is true. And if God can do those things, he can save your marriage. But I don't want it saved. Well, wait, but he can do, God can't do that. But he can save your soul, right? Yeah. Well, then he can save your marriage. No. Well, how do you make that work? See, you can only do that if you cut and paste. And Peter was tempted to cut and paste. Thomas Jefferson yielded to the temptation to cut and paste. And Jesus looked at all of his disciples and said, guys, listen, I know. I know. I love you for who you are. I'm not, I'm not mad. I just want to be clear that my disciples, my disciples are not cut and pasting people. My disciples follow me. I wrote it in the notes this way, that your definition of who you want me to be does not change who I am. That's what Jesus was saying to Peter. Peter, when you say, you're not doing that, you're not suffering, you're not dying, I'm rebuking you of all things. Peter is like, stop it. Who? Your definition of who you want me to be does not change who I am. Who I am defines who you want to be, Peter. Peter, the, 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 the conversation is not whether I'm going to suffer and die and whether you think that's right or you think that's wrong or you think that's what God should do or not do. That's not the conversation. The conversation, Peter, is that when you share in my sufferings, will you suffer and die for my name? I define you. You don't define me. And then Jesus looked to the other disciples around him and he says, guys, let me just clarify this. My disciples deny themselves. They don't deny me. They, don't, they deny themselves. Thomas Jefferson, if you want to be my disciple, you don't decide which parts of me you like or don't like and leave the parts in that you like and take and paste the parts that you, that you don't like. You don't do that. Thomas Jefferson, the parts of me that press against the parts of you, you yield to me. When you read my word and you read my truth and you find out that your views on slavery are sinful and wicked, you don't edit those parts of me you deny your truth. You deny your opinion. You deny yourself, not me. 
Jesus says, that's what my disciples do. My disciples take up their cross and follow me. Thomas Jefferson, listen, buddy, when you find out that what you think and how you live and how you run your economy, a slave economy, is wicked and sinful, you free your slaves. You free your slaves. There's a cost to discovering me. And you read the book, and that's the kind of things that I would teach you in the book. You know it, Thomas Jefferson, because you said all men are created equal. But in the slave economy of that time in our country, it would have ruined Jefferson financially. Take up your cross. You know, you, you would... You would choose your farm over your soul? See, my disciples deny themselves. They take up their cross. The consequences of following me, they'll own and live with and deal with. And then you lose your life. Thomas Jefferson, it's not your truth. It's not your opinion. It's not even what is culturally accepted in the moment because all of that was fine in the moment. But you encountered me. I define you. You don't define me. You deny your opinions and your truth. You take up your cross. Well, Well, Jesus, this would wipe me out. It would change my life. It would alter my relationships, right? And you lose your life. My life will never be the same. I cannot, I would have to have all new friends and a whole new economy. Yep. Because none of those things are worth your soul. And when we cut and paste our Messiah, we wind up with these very conflicted lives. It's very, these biblical truths that will apply to parts of our lives, but other biblical truths that will push all the way out of our lives. These parts of Jesus that we cling to and long for and hang on to, and then these parts of Jesus that we ex- resent and ignore and... And we wind up with these deeply conflicted lives. And the only way for us to satisfy that, conf- that, that conflict is to either deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Christ, or to cut and paste. To cut and paste. And Jesus looked at Peter and he looked at the other disciples and he looks at me and he looks at Thomas Jefferson and he looks at you and he would say, guys, I love you. I believe that you believe in a God. Thomas Jefferson believed in God. He was a deist. But I'm not a God. I am God. I'm the son of the living God. And my disciples, they follow me. If you're a cut and paster, I love you. 
but you're not my disciple because that's not me. If you're a life layer downer, <laughs> if you're a self denier, if you're a cross carrier, that's what my disciple is like. Then, guys, I want you to grab this a little bit because I think Jesus' tone is really important here. He's not just launching on his disciples. He's not like, you dummies. He's not doing that at all. In many ways, he's engaging their humanity where he's looking at them in essence saying, guys, I, I know that you struggle with this temptation. I just want to be clear. I want to be clear. And what's fascinating is this was actually a turning point in Jesus's ministry. A bunch of people started to fall off. And it really boiled down to 11 of the 12. Judas, of course, went down a different path. But the other 11 of the 12, they bought all the way in and their lives were marked with denial and cross-carrying and losing their very lives because they looked and said, he is the Messiah, not the one that I made up, the son of the living God. And we love him and we believe him and we think he's right and we know he's God. And they're about halfway through their journey here. So Jesus is looking at them and saying, guys, I know, and you're working this out. It's okay, it's a lot, it's a lot. You're working this out. But my disciples work this out. See, the Bible says it's working our salvation out in fear and trembling. My disciples work this out. They don't cut and paste. They wrestle, they question, they, they try to understand, they think, they even challenge at times, but they follow. They follow. So Jesus would look at me and he would look at you like he did Peter and Thomas Jefferson and everybody else in human history. And he would look at us and say, what about you? What about you? Who, who do you say? Who do you say that I am? Are you saying what I'm saying? Who do you say that I am? And this is what I find. I find that I am faced with that question a thousand times a day. There, there is the grand proclamation, I believe you're the son of the living God. I believe that Jesus is God. I have staked my soul and my life on it. And I bet you have too, maybe, or you're thinking about doing that. But I'm faced with that question all the time because every time I'm tempted to cut and paste, I'm wrestling with that answer. I'm, I'm tempted to rebuke Jesus. You're not that, you're this. You're what I want you to be. And Jesus with love and with mercy and grace and understanding would look back and say, from this point on, let me explain this to you, right? Deny yourself, pick up your cross and come follow me. Jesus, we love you. We're frail, we're tempted. Life seems easier living a cut and paste life. That way nobody really has to be disagreed with. A lot of tension can be relieved. But Jesus, would you draw us close to yourself? 
cement our faith. Help us to receive and embrace your heart and mind so that regardless of the circumstances, regardless of cultural changes, regardless of whatever day and whatever age that your disciples live in, we would make that great confession that you are the son of the living God and we will follow you. God, in these still moments, convict us, challenge us, encourage us, and reveal yourself to us. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.